we, ha- we have a little running joke, my, my senior daughter, Cassie, and I, um, that she's going to write a book uh, on, um, I forget what the book's about, but it's every time we say this word, uh, we think of her book, because it's just going to have one word in it. I think we were going to call it the um, subtlety and nuance or something like that. And you open the page, and this is the entire book. Huh? Um, I put up this word because of this. Um, surely you have had moments in your life where you just look back and internally or maybe out loud or maybe to a friend, you just say, what just happened? Something went on, a conversation happened, a look happened, an action happened, and you are left just devastated going, what, what just happened? We all have these events coming at us. Life throws events at us and they come at warp speed and we don't have time in the moment Uh, to even really process or understand what's happening. They are just coming very, very quickly. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. And while we all agree on that, that some are good, some are bad, we may not agree on which are good and which are bad. You see, the events themselves don't necessarily carry universal meaning. So what happened in any given situation can actually be summarized by a set of facts. You could write some things down and say, this is what happened. But what it means is up to interpretation. So what happened can be captured with facts, but what it means is open to interpretation. My senior year of high school, my church exploded. Uh, I was on stage singing in the choir as a high school student about to leave on a week-long ministry tour, much like Harrison, although we didn't go to Peru. And it was then that our senior pastor confessed to a a seven-years-long affair. And it devastated everyone in the room, as you can imagine. Um, And moments after that bomb was dropped, and there were just tears and shock and elders trying to navigate what went on, we climbed onto a bus and went and sang for Jesus all through Southern California at churches. So that event happened, and I could summarize it with a set of facts that are undeniable and don't change. But the interpretation of those facts do change. In fact, in the same family, they can look different. I'll tell you how God used that in my life. I've shared this before. But God used that event in my life. I was a relatively new Christian. I had gotten baptized the year before. And God used that event to say that the only one who is trustworthy is Jesus Christ. The only one who's going to save me is Jesus Christ. It wasn't our nationally known church. It wasn't our celebrity pastor. It wasn't the status that we had being on TV as a church, which was very cutting edge at the time. It solidified for me that my hope is not in man. My salvation, the good news, is not found in my church. The good news is in Jesus Christ alone. He uses godly leaders. He uses the church. He uses ministries. But it drove something deep inside of me, and it's still there to this day. But this wasn't true for everyone in my family. Others in my family used this same exact event, same set of facts that have not changed, to begin to explore in their mind and prove in their mind, see, this is all fake. This whole Jesus stuff and the gospel and life change and transformation and heaven in the, in the future, it's all fake. And so some in my family use this event as an off-ramp to church. So where for me, I interpreted it one way, others in my family interpreted it a different way, same set of facts. You tracking with me? 
So what happens to us is captured by facts. The way we interpret it is up to uh, interpretation by, by people. So how can you interpret correctly? How do you take the huh moments of your life, the what just happened in this relationship? How do you take those moments and interpret things correctly? Is there solid ground or is it all just relative to the individual? Is it true that you can't argue with someone's experience? The Bible speaks to this and we're going to sort of wade into this. Last week, remember, we talked about oceans of joy that are already present. Joy is not a gift that you have to change locations or circumstances to obtain. Joy is present right where you are, right here today. Doesn't mean it's going to come easy. I said this last week that joy comes freely, but it doesn't come naturally to us. And so we don't just sit around and go and wait for joy to sort of overwhelm us. We talked last week about seeing from Paul's example that joy is ours in prayer. Joy is ours in gospel partnerships. Joy is ours in the promises of God that go with us wherever we are. And joy is found in partaking together. Now, we talked about the idea of partaking is more than this, but sharing in communion today, partaking in communion, partaking in worship and in prayer and in preaching and in baptism, a part of this is our joy. And we've all walked in here with circumstances that may be exactly the same once we walk out of here, but joy is our Church, this is our birthright. Our birthright is to walk in joy. Isn't that powerful? Part of what Sunday is about is, church, lift your eyes. Where does your help come from? It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from your neighbor. It doesn't come from more study, more memorization, more service, better discipline. All those things may be really, really good. Our hope, our help comes from the Lord. So we lift our eyes and we say, God, you're our joy. You're our rest. You're our peace. You're our instruction. You're our teacher. I decided to pivot this morning because I had a fully developed sermon that goes 45 minutes, and on Communion Sunday, we usually trim it down to 35, and the band knows I'll go 40. Uh, And then with with all the baptisms and and communion, we thought, man, things are just getting rushed, and it was trimming down to about a 20, 25-minute sermon. So I am pivoting this morning. That's all coming next week. Uh, And I'm actually really, really excited about it. I'm bummed that we don't get to talk about it this morning. but what I want to do is I want to, I want to hone in on, on three verses in Philippians 1. And we sort of just barely touched on them last week, and they're worth looking at. It's Philippians 1, uh, starting in verse 9. And I want to hone in on this prayer uh, because this prayer is something that you, I, I pray you would return to again and again and again. I pray that this prayer would be something you actually pray over yourself and something that you pray over everyone you care about. Everyone that you love, you can pray this prayer for. It can actually infuse and inform your prayer life. We zero in on this prayer. It's a prayer about our sanctification. What is sanctification? Justification is being made right with God. It happens in an instant. It's the dead coming to life. The theological word is justification. You are now justified. That will never change. Facts. Sanctification, catch this, is our gradual growing righteousness. Say that with me. Sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness. That's a really easy way to remember that. And by the way, I got that from a kid's catechism that our our family has gone through. Highly recommend it. Super, super good. 
But sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness. It just means that step by step, day after day, hour by hour, God's grace is transforming us into the image of himself from the inside out. So this prayer is about our sanctification. It means all of us in this room have maturing to do today. Is God going to finish what he starts? Yes. Look at Philippians 1, 6, right? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. God's not a quitter. God doesn't get distracted. He doesn't get bored with you. He doesn't just get fed up with you. God's going to finish what he starts. That's such a promise to cling to. But you know what? We are called to remain, to hold fast to the word of life. We are called to walk in, in, these, in these ways that he has laid out for us. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Let me read it. And then we'll talk about it. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, humor me for just one second. It's not going to get weird. But take one hand and just kind of put it on your head somewhere. Take the other hand and put it over your heart. Okay? Head and heart. Hey, I just wanted you to, now, if you can do that in opposite motions and chew gum, you're, you're exceptional. Uh, you can put your hand down. God gave us feeling and God gave us facts. He gave us a brain and a heart that we think and feel with. Here's my question. Is your love, is your love abounding more and more with all knowledge and discernment? Do you see how like this word we use, love, which often we attach emotion and feelings to, and rightfully so, God-given gifts, that our love would grow, abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. You sort of see the heart and the head piece of this paired right together in the scripture. I don't even need to convince anyone in this room that we are living in a time where many in our culture lead and live their life, rule their life by feelings. It is amazing to sort of historically look at feelings coming in and out of fashion. I'm a weird guy that loves to read about old, old, old times. And in the church, emotion runs high and rampant in seasons. And then in correction to that, people go over here and they say, no, 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 we've got to get thinking straight. We've got to get knowledge and discernment. It can't just be feelings. And then emotions get kind of squeezed out or thought of as suspicious or less. God holds them in tension, just like you can't get rid of your head or your heart. You kind of want them both. That's how God is with feelings and with knowledge, with discernment. But we live in a time when many in our culture lead and live by emotion. More than that, emotions, feelings, that are, that are steering the way are being codified, meaning they are being voted into law, saying this is the law of the land. The way that someone feels, the way that someone is experiencing life is now the legal way that has to happen. That is implication for all of the rest of us. Wasn't that long ago when conservatives were more in power and it was sort of thought that we were a Christian nation? Remember those days? How many remember when we were a Christian nation? Raise your hand. Okay. Increasingly few of us. <laughs> it used to be we were a Christian nation. I worked with international students. They would come and say, hey, we, we know that America is a Christian nation. 
and say, okay, first of all, take everything you've seen on TV and throw it out the, out the window. That's not Christianity. They would come with Baywatch in their mind thinking that's Christianity and America, package deal. I'd say, please turn off your TV and open your Bible, okay? So it used to be that we were a Christian nation and those conservatives in power, here was the call from people. People would say this, you can't legislate morality. Raise your hand if you've heard that. You can't legislate morality. What it meant was this. Don't take your Bible, don't take your things and try to make it law for the rest of us. I'll tell you, one of the areas that this happened was abortion. You can't legislate morality. Now, that's a whole other sermon that we could talk about. There's ways to take that. But here's why I would say that's fundamentally false. All legislation, that means every law that has ever been passed in America, is someone's morality. So actually, you only legislate morality. There is no law that's ever come down the pike, voted into existence, that is morally neutral. Someone's morality is the law of the land today. This is why we do not derive right and wrong from the laws of the land. God's law is way up here. There's a higher law to appeal to. And the nations will at times come in tune with it. Remember the guitar strings? A worldview is six, six strings on a guitar. And it will sort of go flat, and it will go uh, sharp. It will go in and out of tune. Once in a while, it's right in tune on one of those, two of those, maybe three of those. But the laws of the land are someone's morality being voted into existence. And where it used to be you can't legislate morality was sort of the cry of people who hated me being a Christian and hated me being a pastor, now are saying, you better follow our laws. You better walk in our, our ways. You better get in line with what, with what we say is true and right. When feelings overrun their God-given boundaries, destruction happens. Some of you live by a creek, and you're very interested and concerned when it rains a lot. Because if a creek overflows its bounds, it causes a lot of damage. Only an inch or two of water in a house can cause a lot of damage to someone. So it is with emotions. Emotions are a God-given gift, but when they overrun their bounds, destruction occurs. I want to tread carefully and lightly here, because I know this is a personal issue, and no doubt a personal struggle for some in this room. Next week, you're going to hear this really, really clearly. There are people who preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry. Not hard to see that. Paul says this. Paul commends preachers who preach in love. If you're a parent, you're a preacher. You're teaching your children. I love the testimony of the PA boys. My teachers at school taught me about God. I come from a Christian family. My parents taught me about God. The pastors at their church teach them about God. I want you to know I am preaching this to you because I love you. You can test me in this. You know me and you can look at me. I am telling you these words out of love. So as I say this, don't, don't link this with little memes and videos that get a lot of likes because they're really edgy and really on one side or the other and only give sort of one shouting voice, okay? But I'll say this. Many people are at war with themselves right now. Their mind and their body are at war. 
what they feel and what they think are sort of going on back and forth. Their mind and body are telling them two different truths. So what should you do when your mind and your body are telling you two different truths? I quoted this book a couple of weeks ago. It's called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. She's an incredible woman who admits to her own sin of being head of Brown University feminist study where she ushered into law and into American thought life a lot of the things we are thinking right now about gender study, queer study, feminism, and the like. Since that time, she met the living Jesus Christ, she repented of her sin, and she is walking in newness of life. She could have never imagined this when she was in a lesbian relationship leading that department, that she would one day be a pastor's wife and a mom. Some of her first Christian gatherings were around a meal in a pastor's home, the enemy, so to speak, in her mind. And as she walked into this room of women that she thought no doubt were being held down and beat down by a patriarchal system, she found women joyfully in there, and they immediately said, you want to hold a baby or chop celery? She had two choices, and she's like, I chopped celery. She goes, they didn't realize I had never held a baby. I, didn't, I wouldn't know what to do with that. Her story is utterly phenomenal. And she's a bold, loud, clear, prophetic voice in this really confused age. I highly recommend the book. Here's what she says, though. She says that therapists are the pastors of the LGBTQ religion. Therapists are the ones people are turning to for guidance. And increasingly, they are offering one solution. When your mind and your body are at war, here's the advice being given by therapists. Her words, mutilate your body. When your mind and your heart are at war, mutilate your body. If you begin to lift this rock and look into how many places do they call them gender-affirming surgeries, they've skyrocketed in the last several years. And they are doing irreversible damage to our children. She calls transgenderism the sin of envy. That's the root of transgenderism, is that you're not content with what God gifted you. Remember, God gifted you your maleness. God gifted you your femaleness. And instead of being content, you are envious of the opposite gender. So there are words being thrown away like a woman's brain trapped in a man's body, a man's brain trapped in a woman's body. Here's the biblical response to that. Change your mind. In fact, she talked to one of her former students. She said, before doing this surgery, she goes, do you know anyone who's done this surgery? She just said, please, before doing this surgery, which will, which will cause irreparable changes to you, whether you think it's good or bad right now, you can't go back from this. Would you please spend six months working on your mind instead of your body? Would you work on changing your mind instead of your body? How you feel does not dictate who you are. And it doesn't steer what is real. Our feelings can't manifest reality. So Christian parents and Christian grandparents and aunts and uncles and the church love 
Abound in love. Love people well. Hurting people are turning to hurtful solutions, and we're losing a generation overnight. But don't just love. Love according to knowledge and all discernment. Grow up in love incrementally, day after day after day after day. Love is more than a feeling, and it's revealed to us by God, and it's modeled to us by God. So take confidence in this, church. We can abound in love. You will never, ever, ever arrive at love expert. Can we all agree on that? Every one of us in here, from the greatest to the least, from the oldest to the youngest, from those who were just baptized or those who were baptized decades ago. Isn't it so good to see baptisms, by the way, older Christians? Oh, it just fills you with like, yes! So good. You will never reach maturity this side of heaven. So all of us are in the process right now of maturing. You have not arrived, and that's really good news. God leaves you in a place and in need of grace today, this hour. Lord, I need you every what? Hour. In church? Yes, maybe especially in church. The preacher, absolutely the preacher in church. Lord, I need you every hour. I want to just get two volunteers very quickly. All right, Mitch is one. Who's the other? Emma, you're the other one. He's all, thanks. Okay, Um, I want you to smell this flower for me, Mitch. Okay, I haven't done anything tricky to it at all. Hold your body position, okay? Hold your body position. You're going to smell it with your knee. Okay, so you just sit there. All right, Emma. Good. According to your knee. Are you good at math? <laughs> you don't have to be. Did you pass first grade math? Okay. I want you, to, I've, I've written a simple math problem on here. I want you to check the math, okay? But I want you to do it with your ear. So just hold this up to your ear. You, you can hold it, okay? You see if that's right, okay? All right, just hold the position for a second. Humor me. All right. Can you describe the smell of that flower? Of course not. How come? Boom! His knee doesn't smell. This is going just how I drew it up. Emma, is that math problem correct? How come? You said you passed first grade math. What's wrong with you? Your ears can't see. Are they good at checking math? Not written down math. All right. Thank you, guys. You can put your knees how you want. Give it up for them. All right, what's the point? Smelling flowers is good. Knees are good. Math is good. It's true. Um, Your ears are really, really good. But when you ask something that God's given to you as good, not used as it's intended, it doesn't work. It's actually just folly. It's nonsense. So open up the paper and read what it says. Okay, is that true or false? Okay, those are facts that are false. Two plus two does not equal five. How many know that? All right. You use your ears because in this situation it works. Here's the point. Track with me of why we're doing knees and flowers and ears and math. Okay, here, here it is. Track with me. If we let feelings read the roadmap, steer the car, work the gas, and the brakes, you will crash and burn. Sooner or later, you will crash and burn. Someone said this a long time ago, and it's a great little illustration, that feelings make a great caboose, but a terrible engine. 
Hear me really, really clearly. Feelings are a gift from God. And I could do a whole sermon uh, countering this, not countering, just, just augmenting this on how thinking and intellect alone, without emotion, without passion, without feelings, is equally terrible and will lead you to crash and burn. But I'm speaking strongly about feelings because we have swung as a culture way, way, way over here. And one of the worst things that you can do, according to many in our culture, is challenge someone's feelings and experience. Is to balance what someone feels with what is factually true. Feelings can't determine right and wrong. Feeling good doesn't make something true or right. Feeling bad doesn't make something false or wrong. Oceans of joy come from sovereignty. Catch this, not yours, from God's. God's sovereignty. He has made some things immutable. That means unchangeable. You want to know solid ground as to how to interpret what's happening? Huh? It's the immutable character of God. It's the unchanging promises of God. Catch this. It's the immutable word of God. It's so good, it's so gracious, it's so kind to us to have written things down and preserved them through the ages. Who was encouraged by hearing children read scripture up here? That's so healthy and good. Part of the beauty of having children in the home is just hearing their voice and hearing them express God's word is so incredibly powerful. So how can we identify right and wrong? We ask God. Remember the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, one of the easiest, most memorable verses? He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? So if he's told us what's good and what's required, let's just ask him. Let's trust him to lead us into what is right and good. So I'm going to end with these two things. And you can just jot these down. These are, these are trying to give you some handles to sort of walk forward in this. Two ways to identify right and wrong. Identify right and wrong through renewed thinking. Notice it doesn't say right thinking. Here's why I don't say renew it through right thinking. Right means you've arrived. We already identified no one is completed in their sanctification yet. No one is mature. No one has ended and arrived. We are maturing. I say renewed thinking because what you might think is right today may need adjustment or it may need a complete overhaul. I love the humility of Rosaria Butterfield in her book. She says, here's how I used to love people who were struggling and hurting with gender confusion. And she said, I did that as a Christian, and God showed me a better way, and I changed. I repented. I changed direction. So I hope that this next year you're learning things and growing and changing because you have renewed thinking going on. Turn to Romans 12, 1. I just have two passages for us to sort of look at this. But don't let the familiarity of this lull you to sleep. This is vital to your life. It's vital to your thinking. It's vital to your theology, sort of how you package things and put them together and sort of interpret them. Renew your your thinking daily. Here's what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Did you catch that? Transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a promise I need to cling to all the time. God, is this good? This doesn't feel right. Something about this kind of smells off. I don't know. Can't put my finger on it. Is this good? Is this acceptable? God, should I just allow this? Is this an acceptable thing? Is this perfect? Is this your perfect plan? You have a design for these things. Is, is this how it's intended to go? I'm turning the lens in here on yourself, on your own behaviors, on your own thoughts, on your own words, on your own attitudes, on your own behaviors that are acted out of those attitudes. How can we spend hours on our phone in worldly and world events while minutes in the Word of God and expect to have thinking that's very clearly in line with God's worldview. I hope that's convicting to you. That's convicting to me. Where are we spending our time? Where are we giving our attention? You have agency this morning, friends, to choose where you steer to to point yourself. You're here in church. I'm preaching to the choir. This is part of it, isn't it? Week after week, saying, God, I need clear thinking. Would you help me? Grow up in this. It's not your parents' job. It's not your pastor's job. You are to work out your salvation. Wouldn't it be great if other people could get fit for me? Greer runs like a million miles a year. I'm like, I'm just with him. Go get him, Greer! That's not how it works. I wish it was. It's not that way spiritually either. No one rides other people's coattails spiritually. Here's the next one. Turn over to Hebrews 5, and then we'll... uh, Give your fingers a break. Hebrews 5.11, such an incredible passage. If you hear yourself in this passage, by the way, take it as a huge grace. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at God. Don't slam your Bible shut and go, that's not. Just take it as a grace. If you feel the sting of conviction, go, man, that's God's grace in my life right now. Thank you, God. And then change course. That's, That's what the word repent means. Turn to God with your whole heart, the verse Everly read. Hebrews 5.11 says this. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the end of the chapter, but keep going. Verse 1, chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Those are the basics and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Second one is this. You identify right from wrong through constant practice. Think about this. How do you graduate? How does anyone graduate anything? I have a a high school graduation that I'm hoping is going to happen this spring. I'm pretty confident it is. She's a good student. 
You graduate by passing tests. You know how you don't graduate? You don't graduate if you hate tests and decide not to take them. You call in sick, you feign ignorance, you forgot your homework. What happens is you just stay right where you are. To pass a test, you must take the test. You must face the test. Skip class and you remain right where you are. People are falling left and right from their faith. They are turning aside from the word of life. Part of it is because they keep hunting on difficult issues. They push it down the road and say, not my fight. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Maybe it is hard to explain. There are hard things and difficult things. Maybe it's because people are are dull of hearing. There hasn't been constant practice. They haven't studied for the test. In peacetime, it's easy to let others study hard and sort of follow their lead and sort of tap into their work. But increasingly, the fight for what is right and wrong is happening in homes and can no longer be avoided. When you plug real names and real scenarios into difficult moral decisions and dilemmas, it gets really tricky, doesn't it? And we know this. Feelings can kind of wash over and begin to cloud and tilt our thinking in ways that we wouldn't have imagined before. Church, let me just say this is good and necessary and scary and hard. Wading into difficult issues that have huge implications for the people you love is all of those things and more. Some of you feel tension in your sweaty palms. I feel it in my gut. I get a stomach ache. Some of your heart rates start going up. I'm talking about this. You're already thinking about people in your life that you love dearly, and you just don't know what's good and right and perfect and acceptable. Church, we need the Lord. We need one another. We must study and take tests so we can graduate, so we can grow up, so we can be strong and serve those around us. Romans says the strong. Listen, you have an obligation to the weak. The obligation is know your stuff, live your stuff, let it come from who you are, and wade into the heart and help them to the shore, point them to Jesus. Dan, why don't you come on up. We're going to sing an incredible song that just speaks to the highs and lows of life and how on sort of the ocean, what it's doing on the surface, man, it's well with my soul. It's well with my soul because some unchanging facts went on a long time ago in an actual place with an actual human being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And as we sing this song, bring your concern, bring the test that you're facing, bring this heart that says, I do want to seek you with all, that I, all of my heart. I do want to find you in the way that you have told us to. Maybe you could wrestle with this question even as we sit, we begin to prepare our hearts for communion. What grade are you in? Spiritually speaking, I'm not talking age. What grade are you in? We saw in Hebrews that there are people who should be the teachers by now, but they're children. They're antsy for recess. Can we be done? Let's go. God, grow us up. I pray this whole message, it's a hard message to preach. It's hard to hear for myself. Would you bathe all of this in grace? And the word grace doesn't mean excuse or lower your standard. 
God, the word grace means it's the free gift that you will come. You are our teacher, Holy Spirit. We look to you and lean on you and trust that right now you are instructing. You're giving us insight into the word. Father, as we sing, I pray that you would make this true of us every day, every hour, that it is well with my soul because of you.